We are in Mark chapter 2 once again. We've come as far as verse 13. Where it says, Then he went, he Jesus went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. And it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it? Why does he eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus goes out to the seaside, and the crowds follow him. He teaches them the truth of God once again. Then as he walks, he sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus. This is the man we better know as Matthew, the author of the gospel to which his name has been attached. Many men in this mixed Roman culture had more than one name or forms of their name in different common languages. Levi, of course, was Matthew's Jewish or Hebrew name. Many believe that Levi was of the tribe of Levi. It wasn't necessarily that those names would stay within the tribe. You know, people would name their sons different things. But there's some indications that Levi was probably in that um, that tribal line. Well, Matthew would be the Greek version of his name, or really it's a different name, the most common of the languages among the people. Levi itself meant joined or attached. The first Levi was named so by Leah, Jacob's wife, because she said in Genesis 29:34 that she bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Uh, Leah was the least loved of Jacob's two wives. And so her womb was open. She had children. And each time she had a son, it was like, well, my husband's going to you know, love me more now. Well, Matthew is a short form. It's the English form of Mattathias and means the gift of Yahweh. Jesus gave new names or nicknames to some of the men he called to follow him. For example, Cephas or Peter for Simon, son of Jonah. Or Boanerges for the sons of Zebedee, which means sons of thunder. And we don't know if this was the case with Matthew or if he simply had two names. I've actually gone by two different names in my life. Doesn't have anything to do with Scripture, but... Uh, I was I'm, my full name is James Robert. There's a couple that they threw in there, but James Robert Howell. My biological father was James Malcolm Howell, and so James after my biological father, Robert after uh, the doctor that delivered me, who was called away from his birthday party. This is the story they tell me uh, to deliver me. So that's my middle name, and you know my parents. Divorced, they broke up, and my mother no longer cared for the name James, I guess. <laughs> so she called me Robert the whole time, you know, growing up, going into grade school. I'm, I'm Robert, I'm going through grade school. I get to high school, and I was so timid, 
that I didn't want to correct anybody, you know, and they had my name on all their class schedules and stuff. So I, I was James, you know, and all my friends from high school would call me Jim and knew me as Jim. And then when I, you know, I, I still considered myself Bob or Robert, but I, I didn't want to cause a scene. <laughs> That's how timid I was. And so then I became a believer in, in this body of believers and you know, started going by Bob, which most everybody knew me here as Bob, still do. And then I got hired at the packing house that I worked in for 13 years. I didn't know when I got hired that they were going to put my name on all my equipment, you know, my hard hat and all that stuff. So I go in the first day, and I'm James. <laughs> So everybody there knew me as Jim, and a few of the guys, you know, that became believers while I worked there, they they still call me Jim, you know, to this day. So you can have more than one name, I guess. <laughs> well, Levi was sitting at the receipt of custom or the tax office. He was a Roman IRS agent, a tax collector. Capernaum was on the major trade route, it's called by the way of the sea, and it was heavily traveled. One source says it's the busiest road in Israel. They actually said the busiest road in Palestine, but that's a fictional state. It's never, never existed. That's the name the Romans gave it. It's Israel. But that was the busiest road there at that time because of all the commerce that went through there. And it was a great place for the Romans to tax commerce. Tax collectors were much hated in Israel. First, they worked for the Romans, occupiers of the Israeli land, and they assessed taxes. Many of them were corrupt. All of them had a reputation for corruption. They were to collect a certain rate, but if they were able to collect above that rate, they could enrich themselves. One source says wealthy Jews would bid for the position of tax collector and get even more rich by adding a substantial fee above whatever was owed. There were also publicans like Matthew who collected taxes for customs or tolls on imports, exports, and merchants who came to buy or sell in Israel. There was actually an income tax. Can you guess what rate that was? 1%. That was the there were a lot of other taxes, but the income tax itself was one percent. Yeah. <clears throat> the religious leaders especially despised the tax collectors, and they were considered unclean because of their contact with Romans. Their testimonies were rejected in court; they could not be a witness in a court trial. They were not redeemable under the law of Moses. Let's say they weren't allowed in the synagogue. So when Jesus made friends with the tax collectors, his ministry was immediately under suspect. The Jews detested these tax collectors not only on account of their abusive and tyrannical attitude, but because the very taxes that they were forced to collect by the Roman government were a badge of servitude. And a constant reminder that God had forsaken his people. The tax collectors were always classed by the people with the harlots, the usurers, or high interest rate chargers, gamblers, thieves, dishonest herdsmen, 
who live promiscuous, lawless lives. Some of the common terms for the tax collectors were licensed robbers (laughs) and beasts in human shape. According to rabbinism, the rabbis, there was no hope for a tax collector. They were excluded from all religious fellowship, including the temple and synagogue. Their money was considered tainted, and it defiled anyone who accepted it. They could not serve as a witness in any court in Israel. Over in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 19, we meet a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was very rich. Zacchaeus said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. You know, you could, it was a great position to be an extortioner. He was showing forth the fruits of repentance, Zacchaeus. Levi was also a wealthy man. He would have been giving up a lot to stand up and walk away from his custom position. Luke writes about this same dinner that Levi gave and says that Levi gave a great feast for Jesus at his house. Levi wanted to introduce Jesus to his friends. There were many tax collectors and other sinners at this feast. And this was a major tax collection center. center. So uh, many tax collectors lived in the area. Mark says many tax collectors and sinners sat with him because there were many <laughs> and they followed him. Later in Mark chapter 12, we're told that the common people heard Jesus gladly. The super-religious, the self-righteous, heard him badly. But the common people heard him gladly. Someone has said the scribes thought they would ruin the Lord's reputation by calling him a friend of sinners. But all the redeemed gladly acknowledge him as the friend of sinners and will love him eternally for it. This call of Levi would greatly offend the religious leaders. It's one thing to make disciples of fishermen. They were at least a respectable occupation, and they did service to others by their trade. But a tax collector, this was a great scandal. No respectable rabbi would act as Jesus acted. But Jesus is not concerned about his reputation. He's only concerned about carrying out the Father's will and bringing all who will come into the Father's kingdom. Philippians tells us that Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking upon himself the form of a bondservant, etc. That is, a slave. The scribes and Pharisees, being the religious experts, asked the disciples why Jesus ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. I say, but we repeat ourselves. The name Pharisee Pharisee meant separated ones. They separated themselves from everything they thought was unholy, and they thought everyone except themselves was separated from the love of God. They accused Jesus at one point of being a glutton and a wine-bibber or a drunkard because of his friendship with tax collectors and sinners. They said John the Baptist had a demon because he did not eat or drink. That is, he didn't hang out socially. But Jesus said wisdom is justified by her children. In other words, the results speak for themselves. The lost sinners were repenting and turning to the Lord, following him and living for him. 
John and Jesus had different ministries, John the Baptist, but the same results because it was the same God blessing them. You know, we see different ministry models in different places, but there is not a need to be ministry conformed. You know, God's going to do different things in different places as he desires to do so. So Jesus heard about this question, why is he eating with these tax collectors and sinners? The disciples may have said, Lord, look at what these holy men think of you. Do you think you should apologize? Should you adjust your behavior? Are you not concerned about what they think of you? Of course, Jesus was not concerned. In Mark 2.17, again, it says, When Jesus heard it, this question, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus gives an answer to the critics. He doesn't always do so, but in this instance, he does. And he says, here's why I'm doing this. I came to call sinners to repentance. I did not come to take part in sinful behavior, but I came to save sinful people who change their minds, turn from their sin, and return to God, being reconciled to him. Is this not a great purpose for which Jesus came? But Jesus also makes a statement for the benefit of those asking the question. He says, I did not come to call the righteous, but only came for those in need of a physician. Now, they may interpret this as Jesus saying, oh, we don't need to repent or we are well. He accepts us as righteous. But this would be a false understanding of what Jesus is saying. G. Campbell Morgan commented on the statement, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. And once again, I'll remind you that although I'll quote people, I'm not endorsing anyone because I don't know everything about them. Uh, this guy has a good reputation as a Bible teacher and commentator, but you can check him out yourself. I thought what he said here was, was very good, and so I wanted to share with you this. It's a lengthier comment by him on, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. He says, that is, even yet, as surely as when it was first uttered, a startling, solemnizing word. In a general, superficial way, men accept it. All must agree in the more positive aspect of it. He certainly did come to call sinners. It's the negative aspect which startles. He plainly declared that he had no message for the righteous. If any man shall refuse to be reckoned among sinners... Then according to this declaration of the Lord, that man stands outside the circle to which his appeal is made. The context shows the true value of the saying. The moral teachers were criticizing him for consorting with sinners. And in these words, he gave his reason for doing so. And at the same time, made it clear that he had no message for any man who refused to take their place with those very sinners. In such a saying, under such circumstances, there is discoverable a gentle satire and a great compassion. These self-satisfied men who will by no means consent to be counted among the sinners are taken at their own valuation. They are whole and so have no need of the physician. They are righteous and so do not require his call. And yet the deepest note is that of his compassion. He knew their sickness and so was willing to heal them. He knew they were sinners, and so was calling them also. When we accept the divine judgment that there is none righteous, 
then we find his call is indeed to us. To resent that finding is to put ourselves outside the number of those to whom the Son of God calls. That's the end of the quote. It is only sinners that qualify for redemption. The atoning price that was paid was only paid for the sinners among men. Many do not consider themselves to be right or I'm sorry, many do consider themselves to be righteous. Maybe not perfect. They don't see a problem with this, but certainly good enough to be let into heaven. They don't need any assistance. I'm basically a good person. Most people you ask will have that response. You know, uh, back in probably 70s, maybe earlier, you know, there was self-esteem studies done when all the, you know, self-esteem was the big rage. And there was a self-esteem study done with prisoners, guys who were in jail. And, you know, the question was about whether they thought they were good. They all considered themselves a good person, even when they were planning their next crime. This, of course, is a great deception to think that we're basically good. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. There is no man that's not a sinner with the exception of Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm still dealing with some of the seasonal crud. I heard those amens. <coughs> this truth is proven over and over again in our own experience and in the recorded history of man. This is the testimony of the human authors of Scripture, <coughs> and their statements include themselves. None of them claim an exception. They were perfect, they were perfect in their transmission of God's Word because He superintended that process. But they were not perfect in their personal lives. They testified that they themselves were in need of redemption. <clears throat> Isaiah 64, verses 5 and 6 tells us, You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf. All, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. It is not only our sin that testifies against us and declares our guilt, but even our righteousnesses are unacceptable in God's sight. Even our good is tainted by our fallen nature inherited from our parents. Even when we are good, we're not good enough. Who shall help us? Is salvation even possible? Romans 6, 23, we're told, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. <clears throat> this wage of sin, I might point out to you that this is a minimum wage. You can't earn any less than death for sin. Paul says we need to raise that. You know, but... <clears throat> 
It could also be described as a universal basic income. You may have heard that term recently. This is, this is man's universal basic income. The wages of sin is death. If we back up to Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26, we're told, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's the only hope, the only way not to earn that wage and have it deposited to your account. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And one who's earned the wage of death can find himself justified before God because of the work that Jesus Christ has done. Isaiah 53, 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The only means of being good enough to get into heaven is to have someone else's goodness counted as your own. It's too late for you to be good enough. So God carried out a plan by which sinners could be rescued from eternal death. But only sinners. If you're not a sinner, God's plan of salvation is not open to you. But good news if you are a sinner. Any sinner and every sinner is eligible. It's a universal offer. An open invitation. And an invitation demands a response. You can accept it, reject it, or ignore it. Only by responding in faith and repentance do you become a recipient of God's rescue plan. It's infinitely better than America's rescue plan that you also may have recently heard about. Even if America's rescue plan works, it's only a temporal thing. It's going to pass away. But God's rescue plan is eternal. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul writes Timothy and says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. This, he uses this phrase in some of his later letters, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. And these were phrases and things that were memorized because uh, not all the churches had a complete New Testament early on, and so they would have you know, things memorized that would be remind them of these truths, like Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul adds, of whom I am chief, the chief of sinners. Although Paul knew well his righteousness in Christ Jesus, he never forgot that he was still a sinner saved by grace. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus says that here in Mark 2 to those who question him. In chapter 10 of Mark, Jesus says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And I've quoted John Newton in the past, who as he was getting older, he said, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. If we look at Titus chapter 3, Verses 3 through 7, we're told this We ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, 
serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you are a sinner who has never responded to the invitation that Jesus sounds abroad, you can do so today. Jesus still calls sinners to repentance so that they may be rescued from their just wages. If you believe in him, your earnings as a sinner will go uncollected. And instead, you will receive a gift that is free and addressed to sinner, whosoever will. If you accept his invitation, then you will find your name inside. If you are a sinner that has heard Jesus' call and come to him, follow him with all your heart. For therein is righteousness and peace. If we move on to Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Another issue arises. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. And then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. So there's three groups of people, the disciples of John, the Pharisees, the disciples of Jesus. Two of the three groups were fasting. And the other was not. And John's disciples did not understand. We're, we get clarification in another gospel. It's John's disciples that come asking uh, Jesus' disciples this question. Now they may be thinking, how can we both be serving God if we're not acting in exactly the same way? If our fasting is correct, then is yours incorrect or vice versa? This was probably one of the two days a week when the Pharisees fasted. <coughs> They fasted, I think, on Mondays and Thursdays. Uh, John's disciples may have observed the same schedule. So Jesus is feasting on their fast day. And not only that, but with the least desirable elements of Jewish society, if we look back to Levi's house. <coughs> while the religiously austere were fasting. The objection of the Pharisees over the company Jesus was keeping was unsuccessful in dimming admiration for him by the people. So now they object on the basis of religious custom or tradition. That is, he's not serious in his service of God. If he were, he would be like us. Of course, God's will is not identical for every believer or every group of believers at any particular time. We see a great variety of gifts and ministries as given in 1 Corinthians 12. And then there are also those who appear outwardly to be pious and devout, but are not truly serving God. They only want to appear to be righteous before men. 
Man has this capacity for hypocrisy. And religious hypocrisy is the most despicable. It makes a show of serving God while acting as if God does not know what's going on. Then there is also that capacity of the deceitful heart by which men may believe that they are righteous by the rituals that they practice. We don't know anything specific about the fasting of John and his disciples, but we assume they were in in keeping with a godly purpose. We'll see some purposes we might fast a bit later. But many of the Pharisees were those who Jesus castigated for their hypocrisy. And uh, one area in which he did so was in regard to fasting. It's in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. In context, Jesus had just taught them how to pray. You know, our Father, which art in heaven. And in uh, Matthew 16, 16 through 18, he says, Moreover, when you fast, and it doesn't say if you fast. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. You know, I'm so holy because I'm, look, I'm fasting. I do this twice a week, you know. And you can... Work this into conversations. Yeah, the other day, you know, I was fasting and just incidentally. Jesus says, you want to draw attention to yourself and get uh, be honored for your fasting, then you got a nice reward. That's it. (laughs) He says in verse 17, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Now, in that day, anointing your head was a normal process, you know. It was the brill cream of the day, you know. They would put the oil on the head, and that was part of the, part of grooming, right? In our day, it may draw attention. Oh, look, I'm fasting, you know, because my head is drenched in oil. You know, he, Jesus is saying, groom yourself normally. Don't distort your face or act weird. So that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who's in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. In Luke 18, Jesus gives that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's in our story here. In verse 9, it says, He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They They didn't need a physician. And they despised others. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Oh, we know how this is going to go if we're a Pharisee. The Pharisee is going to be lifted up and exalted. The tax collector is despicable. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm so much better. I'm not like extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Now I see standing over there. I don't know what he's even doing here. Here's my credentials. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He recognized his need. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This would would enrage (laughs) the Pharisees who were listening. A tax collector? And you you know, he doesn't even quit tax collecting? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So men may fast for the wrong purposes. Fasting is not for earning merit badges with God. 
I'm fasting. God, now give me, give me, give me. Fasting can be a powerful tool, but it is not for manipulation of God. In Isaiah chapter 58, Isaiah speaks to his nation about their fasting. In verse 1 it says, Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily. There's a little bit of sarcasm here because this is what they're claiming. They seek me daily and they delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their gods. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Here's what they say. Why have we fasted and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, he says, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. This is what they were really doing. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. He says, I don't recognize this fast of yours. And you can substitute some other religious thing for fast, you know, just as easily. What, where's the heart? How are we really approaching God? Isaiah says in verse 5, Is it, well, the Lord's speaking, Is it a fast that I have chosen, a, ma- a day for a man to afflict his soul? These are some purposes that we see that why you might fast, to make your voice heard on high, on high to afflict your soul. Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I have chosen? He tells him what he, you know, need to obey me, not just do this religious ritual. This is the fast I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. It is not to share your is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out. When you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light will break forth like the morning. Remember this promise. Your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness. You can't do this. You've got to point like this so that there's three not pointing back at you. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Just as God says through David in Psalm 51, and we saw where uh, David had said to God, against you and you only have I sinned uh, last week. Well, in verse 16, he says to the Lord, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise to bring a sacrifice and continue on your own path was not something that would be meritorious. To sacrifice and not humble yourself before God. 
was not meritorious, but it was the opposite. No merit badges. In the same way, God says through Isaiah, to fast and disobey my commands, to do the opposite of my will, is not meritorious. I would that you would do that which is in my heart rather than fast in self-righteousness. Fasting was for mourning over sins on the Day of Atonement, and this was the only fast day that was commanded for Israel. The other fasts would be fasts that were called or fasts in a crisis, something of that nature, like to let your voice be heard on high. Fasting is for afflicting the soul in sorrow over failing to please God. It was for seeking God's deliverance when facing enemies or dire circumstances. In Joel chapter 2, Joel speaks of this uh, need to call a fast and what the situation involves. In verse 1, he says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. Now people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any and such after them, even for many successive generations. God's bringing judgment upon the land. If we drop down to verse 12, he says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent? And leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. So celebrations are off. Time to get serious and repent. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach. That the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. Fasting is not a great emphasis in the New Testament, but it was a spiritual practice or a discipline. There's only one reference to fasting in the epistles apart from Paul's own experience. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 3 says, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So there was a a fasting and prayer that took place among believers in the early church. It is mentioned several times in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10, <coughs> excuse me, 
verse 30, Cornelius, the house of Cornelius. Um, Cornelius says, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. So this is a uh, Gentile. He's a God-fearer. He prays to the God of the Jews, but he's not a believer, and he's fasting and praying, and the Lord sends an angel to speak to him and says, your prayer's been heard. In Acts chapter 14, then, with this is on Paul and Barnabas' missionary journey. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We don't have a lot of instructions or anything concerning fasting, but we do have examples of fasting taking place. Fasting is most often associated with prayer. It is a means of seeking something from God, emphasizing the seriousness of the heart with which I'm asking, not by earning anything through the denial of my physical needs. But as we spoke about last week, it's an expression of my determination, my persistence in seeking an answer to my request. It's a means of seeking God's will in specific situations. The beseeching of God in a situation of dire need or circumstance, such as Israel was in, the book of Joel. It's an acknowledgement to God that I am in greater need of Him than I am of physical sustenance. And Job 23.12 says, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. We know that Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights. We find in Exodus, then he broke the Ten Commandments. Uh, that is the tablets that they were written on. And then he fasted. He went back and fasted another 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, that's the record, biblical record. Um, there has to be some supernatural enabling to be able to do that. We've seen that Jesus fasted 40 days and nights in the wilderness and was being tempted. Elijah fasted after leaving Beersheba for 40 days and nights as he traveled. Uh, He'd been given cakes by an angel before his journey. And it says, he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. That's in 1 Kings 19. There's also the case of Anna the prophetess in Luke. It tells us that she did not depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day in Luke 2.37. We have a personal friend who once fasted from food for 40 days, drinking only water or juice. But that's not typical. You don't find too many people today that are fasting for that length of time, voluntarily at least. Now, there are different forms of fasting that can be practiced. You can fast from everything, food and drink. That is, nothing by mouth. You you can get a forced fast like that in the hospital sometimes. (laughs) Paul and his shipmates fasted for a couple of weeks when their ship was caught in the storm in Acts 27. That was pretty much a forced fast. You can also practice a partial fast. That is, you can have... uh, 
part, you can fast from food, but you're drinking water or juice, or you may fast from a certain meal or for a certain time. You may fast from some delicacy you give up for a period of time. Daniel did a partial fast to avoid eating unclean things. He requested this of the uh, eunuch that was over him, and he was given permission. A partial fast is what some people do for Lent. If they're in that religious tradition, you know, Lent is that period of time between the Ash Wednesday and Easter, 40-day period. And so, you know, I had friends who would, that I worked with who would give up beer for Lent or uh, some of them would give up, you know, their favorite dessert, ice cream. Or uh, Paul gives up pig's knuckles, he says. For, uh, uh, Lent is not a celebration you find in the Bible anywhere. It's something that arose after that. The only Lent that I celebrate is, you know, sometimes I get some from my navel. <laughs> we don't practice. We don't practice Lent, but some people do, and they, they do a partial fast from something or another. You can, you can fast from an activity. You can give up something you enjoy for the gospel's sake, and in this year. Um, expressing to God your determination, your persistence, the cry of your heart. So why would we fast? There are a number of reasons we might fast. One is so that my voice may be heard in the throne room of heaven. That is for power and prayer. It puts an exclamation point on the seriousness of my request. God may say, wow, a serious request, not a prayer uh, tossed toward heaven and then forgotten about. Not a promise to pray for someone without a follow-through. You know, Chuck Smith in his teachings and tapes, he would talk about getting a jug of water and just driving out into the desert or, or the mountains. And, you know, he'd spend the time seeking the Lord there. Uh, sometimes it's easier if you get away from that temptation of food. You go where there is no food and, you know, then you're going to at least be forced to fast until you get back to where there is food. We've seen that God values determination and persistence in prayer and in seeking His face. In particular, we may fast when praying for someone's healing or when praying for someone's salvation. We might fast when dealing with the demonized. We may not experience this often, but Jesus does speak of the importance of fasting in certain situations involving demon possession. See, later in Mark chapter 9, verses 28 and 29, he comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. There's a demon-possessed young man there, and the disciples were not able to cast this demon out. And it says in verse 28, when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. So there's that fasting that adds to the, the power of prayer. We might fast in mourning and repentance over sin, as we read in the books of Isaiah and Joel. We might fast in dealing with temptation, as Jesus' example gives us. We might fast any time I experience an overwhelming situation in which I need God's help. We may fast because we have no choice, because food is not available for some reason or purpose. Um, if you're in that situation where you'd have no food for a period of time, 
Although it's involuntary, you may turn that time into a fast to the Lord. Second Corinthians eleven twenty seven, Paul speaking of his experience says in some of his sufferings, he says he was in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And I believe he's ta- in the fastings often. I think he's talking about times when he didn't have any food available, uh, and I'm sure that he turned those into times of prayer. That's the Apostle Paul. And then also we might uh, fast because it has some health benefits or health benefits that have been, you know, it's uh, researched and and been shown to be helpful in some situations. It certainly rests the body's digestive system, but it's also been shown to have some benefits for type 2 diabetes. And this is, you know, from totally secular sources that have done research into fasting. What Jesus says over in Matthew's Gospel, this same uh, situation where they're questioning him about fasting. In Matthew 9.15, Jesus says, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast. Then they will fast. This taken away has got a violent connotation to it. So the Son of Man is going to be taken away from the disciples the friends of the bridegroom, and uh, they, they'll be fasting then. But he, here he mentions the fact of mourning, that fasting is for this purpose of mourning. Why would Jesus' disciples fast in mourning? Why would they mourn? Because the bridegroom is taken away from them. How difficult would this be? We might have a hard time knowing or understanding how difficult it was for those 11 guys. To spend three plus years with Jesus and then he goes away. Bummer. None of his disciples wanted Jesus to go away. They weren't hoping the boss would leave so they could knock off early or kick back for a siesta. To be around Jesus as he went about the Father's business was the most fascinating life imaginable. John speaks of the wonder of it in John chapter 1, those first few verses that you know, we've seen, we've heard, we've handled, we touched the word of life. And then he's taken away. This is Jesus' first reference to himself as the bridegroom. John the Baptist had referred to him as such when he called himself the friend of the bridegroom, who, quote, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John 3.29 Jesus understands that his mission in coming and calling sinners is that he might call out a bride from Israel and the nations from among sinners, that he might redeem her from bondage and present her to himself pure and holy. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 28, we're exhorted, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Jesus came to purchase a bride. He came to get a bride, and in doing so, he called sinners to repentance 
since there were no non-sinners available. Why does he call them? Because he loved them. Because he loved them and he gave himself for them. The bride purchase price is his own life laid down for them. And his blood is the cleansing agent by which he makes his bride holy and without blemish. Jesus ends this section by telling the people that he's doing a new thing. This new thing, the new covenant that he is bringing, will not fit in the existing containers. Something radically different is happening here. Jesus gives two examples, new and old cloth and new and old wineskins. The idea is that the new thing the Lord is doing will not fit within the old structures of Judaism. Jesus is not trying to destroy the old. He says that all the law and the prophets will be fulfilled. Anything valid in the old will be present in the new. We should never depart from many things that are old because God has given them to his people forever. But when the Lord does a new thing, it is not always compatible with the old way of doing things. The fabric of Jewish society was not going to tolerate the new garment in which Jesus would clothe his followers. It's not just a patch. It would tear away. It's a whole new robe. The new wine of the Spirit could not be contained in the old wineskins of religious customs. They would burst open wide and be destroyed. It is easy to confuse customs or traditions that have grown up around the church with the gospel itself. It is these things that are not of eternal truth that will require new garments and new containers. Many churchgoers were offended when God did a new thing and hippies began coming to Jesus in massive numbers. That was the situation in which this church was established. There was a lot of skepticism, probably understandably so. It was a culture shock for many Christians. There were different modes of dress hairstyles, footwear or no footwear, different musical preferences. Many did not want any of these people in their church unless they first cleaned up their act regarding customs and traditions. Um, Partial reason why this body came to be was because our pastor was a hippie that got saved, our founding pastor. He went around picking people up in his um, van and you know hitchhikers and taking them places once he got back to this area and witnessing to them and then the hippies started getting saved and you know you take a bunch of hippies in a traditional church and a lot of times they're not very welcome you know so this could be a problem and and certainly there were you know that new thing the Lord did with the Jesus movement there were Uh, Some negatives associated with it. There were some cults that were founded that came out of that. There were heresies that came out, you know, in the early church. At the same time, the apostles were alive that they were having to deal with. You know, you had the children of God that came out of that. You had the Moonies that came out of that time period. But certainly, the Lord did a great uh, work, a true work among that generation. Jesus was not here to perpetuate religious customs or traditions, and he was not going to perpetuate those things. He would uphold, clarify, and refocus believers upon the eternal Word of God with its true understanding. And he would do 
He would, and we would do well to continue that emphasis. Jesus is bringing culture shock to the religious trappings of the Jews. Let's not allow our preferences for anything to obscure the work that God wants to do in reaching sinners and redeeming them for his kingdom. We see in the book of Revelation that they're going to be redeemed from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. We're not all going to be exactly alike, nor do we need to be conformed and be exactly alike except into his image, and that's his job. They don't have to dress like us, talk like us, sing like us. They don't have to have the same traditions or our culture that we have. We don't want those kind of things to stand in the way of people coming to know the Lord. Well, Luke ends his account with this same incident uh, about the cloth and the wine, wine skin, with a verse, Luke 5.39, with this verse, No one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. And that was the situation with many. Now, there was an exception to this in the miracle at the wedding in Cana. The master of the wedding feast told Jesus, you've saved the best wine until the last. And that was new wine, freshly created. Let's always be open to the Lord doing a new thing, not in revealing new truth, but perhaps in challenging our taste buds for the trappings or the clothing of the gospel or the containers for the new wine of his spirit. Can we lay aside our temporal preferences if God does a new thing in our day?